We are back with another episode of the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Daniel Water. Dr. Water is a psychologist and a sex therapist practicing in New Jersey. He is active in the leadership of ESTAR, ASECT, SMSNA, and ISWISH, all leading national organizations in the sexual health and sex therapy space. Dr. Water has held both academic and clinical positions in a number of different settings over the years. We are very happy to have Dr. Water join us today. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Now, in this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about the complexity of erectile dysfunction, primarily focusing on the causes as well as the causes of other sexual health challenges. We don't often get the opportunity to speak about how these issues are addressed from a psychological standpoint. Dr. Water is a seasoned sex therapist who has treated many people with sexual dysfunction. So today we want to lean on his expertise and explore how erectile dysfunction is addressed using psychotherapy. So to get us started, Dr. Water, is anything in your background that I didn't mention in the intro? And if you could just tell us a little bit about your clinical practice in particular, that would be very helpful. Sure, sure. Uh, I think if there was just anything that you didn't mention that would be significant is that I've been practicing sex therapy and psychology now for almost 40 years. And during those 40 years, I have worked with literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men suffering from erectile dysfunction. And um, one of the things that, that has struck me really from the beginning is just the the, the depth of, of despair that so many of these men feel. And so, you know, anyone who does this work, I'm sure has sat with men who describe feeling broken and not whole and less of a man. And what I came to see over the years is that the importance of a functioning penis went well beyond the ability to have sex. It was really central to uh, most of these men's sense of, of manhood. So over 40 years, you know, I've heard so many stories. Uh, obviously, they're all different in some ways, but with with a lot of uh, commonalities. Um, in terms of my training, though, I was trained kind of like most sex therapists uh, in my day were trained. You know, we we started, you know, learning the Masters and Johnson's approach to uh, to treating sex therapy. Most of sex therapy in the beginning was very behaviorally oriented. Um, as the years went by, uh, more of a cognitive behavioral, uh, you know, therapy was uh, was put in place. I I studied with uh, Albert Ellis, um, who is of course the founder of uh, Rational Emotive Therapy, or now it's Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. Um, and Ellis, of course, is known uh, as a master. Uh, therapist and psychologist and and one of the founders of CBT. But what people forget is he's also one of the early sex therapists. You know, he was behind the original formation of ASECT and and Quad S, and he wrote a lot about uh, sex therapy, you know, in his uh, early writings and sexuality. So I learned a lot from him. But um, as as the years went by, uh, my my life and my course of doing therapy was changed when I was first introduced to the work of Irvin Yalom um, and uh, the existential approach to to, to therapy. Um, you know, Yalom certainly wouldn't describe himself as a sex therapist, but if you read any of his texts, 
Um, he has all, he always is as, as many examples of treating sexual problems through an existential lens or an existential approach to therapy. And, um, you know, that, that really has, has transformed my work. It formed the, the basis of the, the book that I have uh, recently written. Um, and, uh, and so what makes my practice now a little different from many sex therapists is uh, I've sort of shifted away a little bit from the straight sort of CBT road uh, to a more existential perspective. Okay. So Dr. Warner, I'm, I'm going to slow you down because you're, you're, you're sharing so many like wonderful pieces. <laughs> I really want our listeners to be able to, to understand this. Um, I really want to kind of glean from your expertise. So, so can we just kind of go back and talk about just some of the main psychological approaches, viewpoints on like when it comes to treating um, sexual issues, in particular sexual dysfunction, you mentioned mm-hmm. that that the original formation of sex therapy was very behavioral. Over mm-hmm. time, they've added a cognitive piece, um, cognitive behavioral. Can you just give our listeners like more mm-hmm. of a sense of the development of these, the, the thought processes behind them, why it makes sense for behavioral interventions, why it makes sense to have cognitive interventions, and then we can get a little bit more into the existential therapy. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I, I think it began as a very behavioral, uh, you know, kind of approach to treatment with Masters and Johnson for a couple of reasons. One is, um, you know, they were not uh, psychologists or psychotherapists. They were they were medical people. And their work originally was really looking at the, the, the body's response to sexual stimulation. Um, and they developed the first theory, really, or the first data we had about the human sexual response cycle. So as a result of their work, you know, people would come to them with sexual problems, uh, asking them for help. And so this was back in a day when a lot of uh, sexual dysfunction was the result of a lot of misinformation or or just a lack of information, you know? So things that we take for granted today, that if you're a man and you recently started new medication and you experienced some erectile difficulties after starting the medication, I, I think today most people would think, oh, maybe the medication, I should talk to my doctor. Back in the early 60s when Masters and Johnson were doing their work, that did not occur to people. You know, they they didn't know about that connection. They didn't realize things that you know, if you had too much alcohol, you know, that that might interfere with. So so a lot of things were happening where people would have uh, sexual difficulties for explainable reasons, but reasons that they did not understand. It would raise their anxiety level about functioning. And so Masters and Johnson's approach really was a combination of some good sex education combined with some behavioral exercises to reduce anxiety so that you could, uh, you know, uh, uh, worry less. Yes. So, so can we can we just get a, just slightly uh-huh. deeper into this because it's a question that that I know comes up for myself as a therapist, and mm-hmm. I know I, I've developed a way to explain this to people. But a, a lot of times, people are asking me, "Well, if it's anxiety, what what do these behavioral exercises do?" So, if it's if it's anxiety about performance. For example, as Masters and Johnson suggested, what the behavioral exercises are, dy- are designed to do is really through exposure and a sort of a graduated uh, kind of exposure where they start with, uh, you know, just massaging, you know, the sensate focus exercises don't involve any breast or genital touching or stimulation in the beginning. You know, as you 
as, as you progress through that, then you would start to add those things in. And basically, attempting to have intercourse is the last stage in that process. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that, you know, you sort of gradually sort of re-enter the sexual uh, realm. And by doing that more gradually, your anxiety level about whether you're going to function or not, whether you're going to perform or not, gradually starts to drop. So if we're thinking in a very anxious manner by engaging in the activity, let's say that we're afraid isn't going to work, and we mm -hmm. see that we have an experience where it doesn't go quite as bad as we thought it were, and we see there was that starts to help kind of take down the anxiety, take down the anxious thinking, and then little mm -hmm. by little through that exposure, the anxiety just lessens in intensity and hopefully leading to better outcomes. That That is what Masters and Johnson uh, believed, and that is what uh, turned out to be the case from, from the people that they were working with. Okay, now we kind of progress over into the Albert Ellis realm. When we're adding the cognitive side of the therapy, what does that mean? So what was what then started to happen is as sex education got better and people had access to more sex information, you know, we weren't really seeing so many of those cases where men would would have erectile dysfunction because of, you know, medication or alcohol or something and and then panic about it because they would have a much better idea of what maybe that was related to. So the cases that we started to see were more complex, were more psychologically complex. And so the, the cognitive uh, element or the cognitive behavioral element really started to come into it when we were doing really more of a psychotherapy as opposed to more of a psychoed and 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 some some behavioral exercises. So part of the things that uh, that the cognitive behaviorists would look at are not just what were you feeling? But also, what were your thoughts? What were you telling? What was your what what the CBT therapist would call self-talk, you know? And so part of what was fueling that anxiety was the self-talk about not only I, I'm afraid I won't function, but if you approach it from Albert Ellis's standpoint, for example, it would be sort of catastrophizing about not being able to function. In other words, I'm afraid I won't be able to function, and that would be awful. That would be terrible. That would be a disaster, you know, and so by sort of, uh, you know, having these sort of exaggerated negative cognitions, your anxiety level would then spike even higher. And that continued level of anxiety would maintain the, uh, the, the dysfunction. Okay. So he so, so the cognitive so, so the cognitive behaviorists. Uh, I mean, they would add some behavioral homework assignments, sure. but a big component of those exercises was also recognizing and challenging the thoughts that were going through your mind and coming up with more sort of rational assessments. Um, you know, it would be it would be unfortunate if I had an, a sexual problem, but it wouldn't be catastrophic. You know, in other words, like yeah, another another angle, another approach to really kind of helping that anxiety tamper down over time. Ultimately, leading to or hopefully leading to better outcomes because anxiety doesn't seem it seems to be a very unhelpful element when it is present for sexual function. So these Absolutely. these were like two of the primary approaches, right? And I would say that the 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 second approach, the cognitive behavioral approach, is probably the the mainstream of sex therapy even today. You know, it's 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 continued. You know, people have added in. You know, the next wave of cognitive therapy, which would include mindfulness and, and some of those. Uh, yeah. You know, so uh, so it's evolved. 
and I think in, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that it is probably the the most dominant form of sex therapy practice today. Yeah, you're saying in other words the 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 general direction of a combination of cognitive, behavioral, and then sometimes you're saying mindfulness or other emo, emo, emotionally regulating activities or or therapeutic mm-hmm. interventions seems to be the predominant approach to sexual dysfunction and in particular to psychological or psychogenic erectile dysfunction. Now just mentioned on, 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 on the side, there also is relational therapy, which mm-hmm. you know, is, is something that can be done as an adjunct depending on the etiology, the causes, or the types of anxiety that uh, people are experiencing leading to sexual dysfunction. Um, but a lot of that would tie mm-hmm. back into a, a cognitive behavioral or, um, you know, a, a motor regulatory, uh, re- uh, emotional regulation type approach in mm-hmm. a couple's context. Yes. Yes. I, I, I think that that's accurate. Yeah. Okay. So with such a great overview Dr. Ward, let's let's kind of get toward existential therapy. So, so first and foremost, can you tell us just just what is existential philosophy and how yes. that ties into existential therapy? So, you know, this is this is the uh, the work that I've been doing now for the last you know many many years. Is so I have moved away a bit from the traditional uh, CBT approach to doing sex therapy. And have really been influenced by the uh, the existential model and the existential lens, and it's it it creates a, a very different um, different approach than uh, than than the, the traditional approach. So, what makes something existential? I, I mean, you know, there, there are probably many differences. Uh, there are th- probably many uh, different definitions of existential. But from a psychotherapy standpoint, really, what we're looking at is something. Uh, an existential threat is a threat to one's existence. So something that that threatens your 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 world as you know it, something that threatens your your existence could be, I mean, literally in terms of uh, uh, mortality. But but a lot of times it's 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 not it's not really the the mortality piece. It's just it it threatens my safety. I feel like I am in an unsafe situation. And so the way that impacts sex therapy is I have challenged uh, the, the concept that performance anxiety is a significant ideological factor in, in sexual dysfunction. Uh, I do think that performance anxiety may have something to do with the maintenance of erectile dysfunction, but I don't believe that that's what causes it. And the, the reason I say that is because so many of the uh, men that I've worked with and so many of the couples that I've worked with will report a long history of successful sexual interactions between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then things change. And, um, you know, they're, they're always baffled as to why. But it seems to me that if you are in a relationship with somebody, and let's just, you know, arbitrarily say, you know, two years. And over those two years, you have regular sexual contact and uh, intercourse is without problem. Why would you start to worry about performance now? Why would you start to worry about performance with someone who you know, who you're familiar with, who you're comfortable with, and who you've had lots of success with? And this was really the most common pattern that I was seeing in my practice. So I started to look a little bit more carefully into 
so what's what's going on here, right? And so what I developed was this idea from existential therapy that the penis speaks, that the penis is, is really a conduit of male emotion. And the way the penis speaks is that if we have suffered relational trauma, if we find ourselves in a situation that triggers that relational trauma, what better way to protect yourself than by sexual distancing, a sexual shutdown? So, for for example, one of the, the things that I have started to look for and have found in so many of the cases of erectile dysfunction that I've worked with is that the erectile dysfunction occurs following what I call a relationship deepening event. So in other words, you will often hear cases of people who say sex was fine and then we got married and I couldn't keep an erection. Sex was fine, and then we moved in together. Sex was fine, and then we we got engaged or something like that. There was a a relationship-deepening event, which if you have had early, especially non-sexual, relational trauma in your life, like abandonment when you were young or, or, or rejection or neglect or something like that, when a relationship deepens, your vulnerability increases. In other words... I am now in a position where I can be hurt. And I believe that that triggers a self-protective shutdown to distance myself from the pain. And if, if you like, um, I, can, I can actually read a, a, a short vignette about a case that describes this phenomenon. Yes. Uh, be- if we, do we have time for that? Yes. Yeah. Let's do that. So. This is, uh, you know, this is from the, the book that I, I wrote, and um, this is called the, the Case of James. And this, this, I picked this case, uh, which of course is heavily disguised, and you know, there, are, you know, I all, you, all no names one, and identifying information have been changed or masked, to, right, to to protect the the innocent and not so innocent. Right? <laughs> um, so everything has been 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 uh, you know been been masked like that. But I picked this one because I thought it illustrated this concept um, uh, of the way an existential sex therapist would view erectile dysfunction. So. James was a 53-year-old married heterosexual man who came to see me for erectile dysfunction. He was referred by his urologist who was quite certain that James's sexual difficulties were psychological in nature. James had recently married for the third time following two unwanted divorces. He reported that he had never experienced erectile difficulties before, and he and his current wife had enjoyed a very nice, spontaneous sex life for the four years that they had dated before marriage. To the surprise of them both, James was unable to maintain penile erection on their honeymoon. That was two years ago, and James's erectile difficulties continued. I want to interrupt the story for just a second to also say that one of the the things that I have noticed that made me think more about this is that most of the men that I work with with erectile dysfunction, assuming that there's not a a medical uh, 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 cause or problem, Mm -hmm. they will report very little difficulty getting erect. They can keep erections for a long period of time. They can keep an erection through foreplay. But as soon as they're about to have uh, penetration or shortly thereafter, that's when the erection fades. So it, 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 it keyed me in that there's something that happens 
at the time of penetration, that is really what's dysregulated. Yeah. So by way of history, James reported that he married his first wife while they were both college students. He recalls being madly in love with his wife and enjoyed married life greatly. However, after approximately three years of marriage, James came home unexpectedly one afternoon and found his wife in bed having sex with one of her co-workers. James was devastated. He was taken completely by surprise, and he was further stunned to hear his wife say that while she was very sorry he had to find out this way, she was unhappy in the marriage and she wanted to divorce. She felt they'd married too young. She wanted to experience more of the world before being tied to a relationship. James was crushed, and he swore to himself that he would never fall in love again and resigned himself to a life of solitary loneliness. He doubted he would ever find happiness again. However, as time passed, James's pain faded and his mood improved. To his great delight, he met another woman and once again fell madly in love. They dated for about a year and then married. James recalled feeling deliriously happy and was again enjoying married life. Unfortunately, approximately six years after marriage, James's second wife also asked for a divorce. James, speechless once again, was overcome with sadness and disbelief. He was angry at his wife for blindsiding him, but also angry and frustrated with himself for allowing himself to be in this situation yet again. He renewed his vow to live a life of peaceful aloneness and spare himself the pain and vulnerability of being abandoned in the future. James continued in this manner for approximately seven years before he found the woman who would become his third and current wife. James's current wife was a co-worker who helped bring him out of his depressed state, and he unexpectedly found himself falling in love yet again. This time, however, James promised himself he would move slowly and cautiously. After four years of dating, the relationship was going quite well, and they decided to marry. James was very pleased to have another chance at love and happiness, and he eagerly anticipated the wedding date. As mentioned above, sex for the couple was effortless, frequent, and satisfying. However, on the first night of their honeymoon, James, for the first time in his adult life, was unable to maintain penile erection. He was perplexed, but he thought maybe he, has he was just exhausted from the excitement of the wedding and the travel to their honeymoon destination. However, sex the next day produced the same result. James was able to achieve erection without difficulty, but as the couple went to engage in sexual intercourse, his erection faded. This pattern continued unabated for two years before James sought medical consultation. As we began psychotherapy, James related much of what was just described in the preceding paragraphs. One day, as our session was ending, James said, I don't know if this is important or not, but I think every experienced psychotherapist knows what this statement portends. We call this a James revealed, moment, right? What's that? Door moment. Yes, doorknob moment. Exactly. James revealed that when he was a very young child, his mother would often disappear for prolonged periods of time. Apparently, James's mother suffered from severe depressive episodes. This was in an era before the current wave of antidepressant medications and the interference of health insurance companies pushing for short hospital stays. As a result, James's mother was hospitalized for her depression on several occasions, many lasting for weeks or months. James recalled being a toddler and wandering from room to room in search of his mother. Given his youthful age, his elders didn't think he should be told the truth, 
and exposed to the reality of the situation, so he was told only that his mother had to go away for a while and would soon be back. James recollects this as being a very frightening time, and he often cried in anguish, fearing he would never see his mother again. James was baffled as to what was causing his erectile shutdown, but this picture was becoming increasingly clear to me. James's penis was speaking to him, but he wasn't understanding the message. Often the primary task in sex therapy with men is helping the man understand the significance or meaning of what his penis is attempting to alert him to. This is what sex therapists sometimes refer to as penis wisdom. The concept of penis wisdom suggests that there are times when the penis, representing messages generated in the unconscious, perceives a danger that the conscious mind is unaware of. When this occurs, the force of the unconscious will overpower the wishes of the conscious. The result is a sexual shutdown that is designed to protect the man from a potentially threatening situation. So to me, what you see in a case like that is, you know, the sexual difficulties began following a relationship deepening event. That's when James felt his existence was threatened in a sense. In other words, his original trauma, which was the the depression, uh, the depression episodes of his mother, which was reinfer- reinforced by the abandonment from his first two wives. Then he marries this other woman and his his protective unconscious is essentially saying to him, I can't let you do this again. You know, this we had because he had not dealt with or or really even acknowledged the early childhood trauma. So the therapy now starts to focus less on restoring erectile ability like traditional sex therapy would do with their homework exercises and works on helping to resolve the trauma so that the protective unconscious doesn't feel the need to protect him anymore and he can go back to functioning the way he was before he felt like he was in a threatening situation. Okay, so so Dr. Wars, I mean, this is so, it's so fascinating when you, like, to hear you talk about this. So, so I, I couldn't agree more that there's a general misconception out there that if, when we talk about psychogenic ED, we talk about like there being a psychological cause <clears throat> There is a tendency to just assume everything is performance anxiety. And this is a great example where it's just, it's not performance anxiety. He's performing perfectly fine. Um, Now, in this context, yeah, in this context, you're talking about a relationship deepening event. But I'm wondering, because there are all sorts of manifestations that, that I've seen, I'm sure that you've seen over the years, where sometimes it almost defies any pattern or logic. Other times, though, um, there are men who, um, are experiencing this this uh, psychogenic ED in any relationship um, mm-hmm. at the beginning, at the onset, without really a deepening type of event. So you know, oftentimes I distinguish just between performance anxiety and what I call relational anxiety, that there are all kinds of relational traumas out there that people have. And you know, I guess where, where you know, this becomes like therapeutic semantics a little bit, what really is the difference between what CBT would call a core belief that mm-hmm. develops over time, let's say from experience? So let's say in the case of James, uh, he had this experience where he, he he walked in, his wife was committing infidelity and then informed him um, that she just hasn't been satisfied. Another wife, another relationship ended in a surprise divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we distinguish between what CBT would call a developed core belief that um, if I get too deep in, I'm going to get hurt. 
Um, you know, eventually people are all going to leave me. You mentioned that there's a history that he had beyond just these relationships of feeling abandoned mm-hmm. by his mother. Mm-hmm. How do we mm-hmm. distinguish between a core belief, which we could challenge with any other CBT technique, and um, something which sounds a lot more like, like again, existential, a trauma, um, which, right. again, seems to have much more of an emotional uh, piece that has to really kind of process through the feelings of abandonment. How do we distinguish right. between these or do we not? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's an excellent question. And I think that, uh, you know, it kind of, you know, reminds us of the fact that, you know, if there was one way to do this, we'd all be doing it the same way. So, you know, people are different. People respond to different things. People respond to different kinds of of treatment. And I, and I believe that people have erectile difficulties for countless reasons. Right. But, but to, to answer your question specifically, the way I would distinguish between those is uh, both the core belief in that CBT would look at and the sort of uh, existential anxiety that an existential therapist would look at both represent some threats to one's safety, right? Mm-hmm. The, the primary difference is that at least the, from my understanding of it, when we're talking about a core belief, we're talking about something that is relatively easily accessed consciously. The existential uh, anxiety is really the result of a repressed or unacknowledged uh, trauma. And so part of the therapy is actually identifying the core belief and bringing it to the surface so that then it, it can be dealt with. So um, it's, it's uh, again, you know, in, in, in so much psychotherapy, there, there's so much overlap. And, and one of the things that, uh, that Yalom talks about uh, when he talks about existential approaches is he really talks about what he calls an existential lens, um, which means that existential principles can work very nicely with a CBT therapist. Uh, you know, it's, they're, they're not really that, that separate. You know, you can apply existential principles and existential ideas and philosophies to, to CBT. I mean, they're, they're certainly not, they're not mutually exclusive. They are definitely not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And uh, even, you know, Albert Ellis, you know, one of his earliest books was called humanistic psychotherapy. You know, he, he had a lot of existential uh, beliefs and, and ideas that, uh, that went into the development of RET. Yeah. Now um, I, I haven't studied existential philosophy at, at length. Um, I think one of the um, thoughts about it or one of the you know, general consensus is, is that there are certain existential constructs that we face as human beings that really are not answerable. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times there's not a good way to grapple with existential questions. That's part of what makes them existential. Um, right? they, they are That's part right. of our existence, but in a lot of ways they are beyond our comprehension. Like, you know, how how not alone can we be? How connected can we be if nobody can really step into our world, right? An existential loneliness, right? right? right. So right. does that does that come into play in existential therapy um, in terms of, you know, let's say in the case of James, where he's, he's, you know, fear of abandonment, fear of being alone. Does James have to grapple with this existential loneliness in order to be able to, I guess, both accept 
and recognize the limitations of what it means to connect, what it means to feel safe in order to be able to, to heal this wound? Or does it not have to get that deep? No, it, 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 it does uh, uh, try to get that deep because, um, well, so, so there, there are a few reasons. One is existential therapy defines itself as a very relational psychotherapy. You know, there, yes, there is the belief that many of us struggle with loneliness, you know, and, and a sense of being disconnected and sort of existentially drifting. The idea is that by grappling with those existential issues, it does allow us to connect, which is what's necessary for good mental health. So the, the existential approach also differs from a lot of sort of the current wave of psychological thinking in that the, the, the existential approach puts relationships above individuality. You know, so as opposed to, you know, what, you know, if you, if you just sort of scan the self-help bookshelves, you know, these days, you'll see lots of books about, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, you can't hurt me. I can be the best this, uh, you know, improving myself, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and, and the existential approach is really the opposite. It's about, we share this world together. We need to work on being connected and shared social living and 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 shared responsibility for each other's lives and happiness. Yeah. So as a relational therapist, I couldn't agree more. I think we are wired for connection. I think it's great when people yeah. can self-regulate to be able to connect better. Um, but I, I definitely can appreciate that. So it sounds like, Dr. Water, from from your perspective, existential issues are are oftentimes present. Maybe it doesn't account for every situation, but in many instances, um, the healing process for uh, psychogenic erectile dysfunction, which most commonly is seen with this discrepancy between what people are able to do in a relationship mm -hmm. and what they can do on their own, and mm -hmm. what, where exactly things are going on in a relationship. It sounds like it's a pretty common phenomenon. Now, one of the appeals and advantages, I think, of a CBT approach, at least you know, as CBT comes packaged, so to speak, mm -hmm. is that it is at least marketed as or defined as something which is a time-limited, short-term approach, which mm -hmm. I think is yes. you know, very, very appealing um, when it comes to therapy, wanting particular outcomes. Now, existential therapy certainly was not developed in the insurance world that we live in, as you mentioned. <laughs> um, That's for so, sure. So, you know, the, the idea of, oh, a 15-session protocol, a 20-session protocol for existential therapy almost sounds an, an antithetical to the process. So can you share just a little bit with our listeners what the process is like and, mm -hmm. you know, should, should a man who's experiencing ED and it has its existential roots, should they expect to be in therapy long-term to really be able to resolve and get themselves to a better place? Or can results on the sexual front begin to be seen earlier on in the process, even if they want to continue, let's say, layering down and leveling down into the deeper parts? Yeah, so that's that's a very interesting question. And and I'm, I, I'm going to answer that today differently than I would have a year ago. And, and the reason I say that is I, I've been very lucky to have a lot of conversations with uh, with Irv Yalom, you know, over the years and and sort of pick his brain a lot and 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 learn about existential approaches. And you're quite right that existential therapy really has its roots in psychodynamic therapies which tend to not be, you know, quick therapies at all and and I I think, you know, you know, Irv Yalom would have said the same thing that, you know, therapy is 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 really kind of a longer process. 
But he's been actually, as he's gotten older, he's in his 90s now. And so he's not able to do long-term therapy anymore. Um, And so he started experimenting with single session consultations. And he has been really kind of surprised and, uh, and, and pleased that he's finding that in a single session, he's actually able to open up, you know, some of these existential ideas for people that they are then able to kind of follow on on their own and, and, and start to see some benefit from now. Is that something that most people are going to be able to do? I don't know. Albert Ellis was great at single sessions too, but that's because that's Albert Ellis and that's Irv Yalom. And there's an expectation going in that, you know, the expert, that, uh, the expert effect, as we said. That's right. The expert effect. Exactly. So for me, you know, I, I my therapy is much, much more long-term. Um, I do find that people start to see some improvements in their sexual functioning fairly quickly. And what I mean by fairly quickly within, you know, uh, four to six months is not unusual, but most people, they stay in therapy with me for a few years, um, because it's helpful to them. Uh, it, uh, I, you know, part of, again, the existential philosophy is that, you know, the, the penis speaks, right? So it's, it, so it's not like, okay, once my penis starts working, I don't have any more issues to deal with. It has has a lot to say, even, even when it's erect. That's that's right. Yeah. That's right. And and there are a lot of issues, you know, from my past uh, uh, that are impacting my present. And so they find it helpful, you know, to continue in therapy, not necessarily weekly, although certainly some do. Um, but the therapy that I practice is 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 a long term, uh, a, a long term therapy because the relationship um, really becomes, you know, so so helpful. Dr. Waters, I, I I really appreciate so much the the experience that you've had working with Dr. Yalom in particular. Um, I want to you know make it clear to our listeners that like uh, existential therapy and Dr. Yalom's work has had a tremendous impact on myself, my own development. Many therapists out there um, have um, gleaned so much you know from his from his uh, writings. Um, for anybody who's interested in more about Dr. Yalom, I think there was an article within the past couple of years um, in the Atlantic, in the Atlantic. His, own, his own process yeah. of aging and whatnot, which is a big existential experience. And, and he kind of talks a lot about him. If you want to learn more about him and just, just his mm-hmm. perspective on the human condition, Dr. Water, you you recently published a book um, yes. about, you know, existential therapy and, you know, male sexuality in particular. Um, if you could just lead, tell us the, a little bit just about the book, the title um, so our, our listeners uh, can you know, look it up or whatnot. We can even add a link uh, in the description sure. to, to this sure. episode so they can get their hands on a copy. Sure. No, I'm very happy to. Uh, you know, I, uh, this book just came out about a month ago. Um, it's, it's called The Existential Importance of the Penis, A Guide to Understanding Male Sexuality. And um, the, uh, the 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 case of James that I had read earlier is is taken from the book. And what I've done is I've taken um, Irv Yalom's theory and the existential dilemmas that he identifies as sort of the general existential dilemmas that people people present in psychotherapy and applied them to male sexual uh, difficulties. Um, so. 
it's uh, it's a different approach to sex therapy, um, but uh, I tried to write it in a way where it would be accessible to uh, non-professionals as well. Um, and um, I hope people will find it interesting and valuable. No doubt. And, and is this is this something they can find on Amazon? Is this? Oh yes, yes. Amazon, okay. Barnes and Noble, um, all the major all, book all, all the major booksellers. Yes, yes. Perfect. Okay, well, Dr. Ward, thank you so much for joining us. We hope we can have you back for another episode in the near future. There's so much to talk about here. Um, this gives our, I think our listeners, such a great over, overview of the role of psychotherapy in general and just, again, how nuanced the process can get and how complex um, the impact of the mind, the impact of our you know, being as, as human beings can be on the erection process and on our overall function. So once again, thank you for joining us. We hope to have you back soon. I would love that. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction radio podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.